1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. An hour from now, I'll be they get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone and welcome into a very special episode 50 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about the history of the Genovese family's New Jersey faction. It's been a few episodes since we talked about the mob, and I thought it'd be fitting if we went back to the show's roots for episode 50, and this group is the perfect way to do that. They were deeply embedded in the family's history from the very beginning, getting their start under early mob boss Joe Masseria. But it was members like Willie Moretti, Richie Boyardo, and Gerardo Catina that showed that the faction really had some weight in the family. And they paved the way for future New Jersey heavyweights like Bobby Manna, Tino Fumara, Salvatore DeVita, and Louis Gatto, who would turn the state into a goldmine for the Genoveses. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. The link's in the description. But without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. To start, we have to go back to the early 20th century because the story behind the Genovese family's Jersey faction is a tale almost as old as the New York Mafia itself. As early members of Italian organized crime who worked out of New Jersey were under the control of New York City's Masseria family led by Joe Masseria. But they were really able to prove their worth during Prohibition for which New Jersey served as a hub. In over the 14 years of Prohibition, approximately 2,000 stills were raided in Jersey, and police confiscated property valued at nearly $9 million. However, as most of you know, at the peak of Prohibition in 1930, violence erupted between the two rival New York City families, and the violence became known as the Castellamorese War, which saw Joe Masseria and his mob family battle it out with Salvatore Maranzano, who was the boss of the Brooklyn-based Castellamorese clan for control over all Italian gangs in the U.S. Then, on April 15, 1931, Masseria was murdered, leading to the rise of the original five families, one of which was the Luciano family, headed by Lucky Luciano. And since most members of the Masseria family's Jersey faction worked as bootleggers for Luciano, many of them were absorbed into his new family. And when Prohibition ended in 1933, the Jersey faction expanded into other crimes. And by this point, the most powerful member of the faction was a capo named Guarino Willie Moretti. Born in 1894, when Moretti immigrated to New Jersey in his early life, he met his cousins Frank and Eddie Costello, and the three of them would eventually form a gang on the streets of New Jersey. Moretti himself started dabbling in robbery and extortion, and by the early 1930s, Moretti had made enough of a name for himself to be promoted to capo. He also ran a successful gambling racket throughout New Jersey and upstate New York, and even had a crew that included mob heavyweights like Joe Adonis, 
Abner Zwillman, and up to 60 other members. And it was really the alliance between Moretti and Abner Zwillman that dominated illegal gambling in New Jersey. Because Zwillman was a New Jersey heavyweight in his own right and brought a lot of juice to the faction. By 1920, Zwillman controlled the bulk of the local numbers racket with the help of hired muscle. He got his first taste of bootlegging during Prohibition when he started smuggling whiskey into New Jersey through Canada using several World War I armored trucks. He later joined a bootlegging syndicate headed by a man named Joseph Reinfield to smuggle liquor from Canada using ships, and the two are reputed to have controlled up to 40% of liquor smuggling at the time. Then, after Dutch Schultz was killed in 1935, Zwillman was able to take over his criminal operations in New Jersey. And it was with this status that Zwillman became involved in local politics, eventually controlling the majority of local politicians in Newark for over 20 years, while continuing to dominate gambling operations in New Jersey with the help of Willie Moretti. Then, in 1937, Lucky Luciano was arrested and left Frank Costello as the new acting boss of the family, while Willie Moretti was promoted to underboss, marking the first time that a member of the Jersey faction would reach the highest echelons of the family, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. However, as Moretti moved up, control of the family's Jersey faction was passed to another powerful capo named Richard Boyardo. Like many mobsters, he made a name for himself in the streets during Prohibition while he learned the trade from gang leaders John and Frank Mazzocchi. And as the 1930s rolled around, Boyardo had formed his own crew and even became a made man in the Luciano family. His crew would end up running the scene in Newark, New Jersey for decades, particularly the port of Newark, engaging in racketeering, theft, loan sharking, gambling, and more. And those Wilman and Boyardo had previously been enemies, fighting for control of territory in Newark, the two men put their differences aside and focused on controlling illegal gambling throughout Newark, once Moretti got called up to the big leagues. And the alliance between Moretti, Zwillman, and Boyardo continued to operate peacefully together for years until Moretti became mentally ill in the early 1950s. Because as it was being alleged that Moretti's mental condition was possibly deteriorating from advanced stage syphilis, mobsters began to fear that he was becoming too talkative. As a result, an open contract was put out by the commission to have Moretti killed. And on October 4th, 1951, Moretti was killed while having lunch at a restaurant in Cliffside Park, New Jersey. And the shooters are alleged to have been Philadelphia mobster Antonio Caponegro and Joseph Lacalci. And though the New Jersey faction was weakened following the murder, Zwillman and Boyardo kept it going. However, the hit on Moretti also became a key factor in weakening Frank Costello's leadership position within the Luciano family, as his only remaining supporter was Albert Anastasia, another boss within the five families. And in a move that would cause his downfall in the mob, Costello promoted Vito Genovese to underboss in 1951 after the death of Moretti. After his promotion to underboss, Genovese gained the support of Lucchese family boss Tommy Lucchese and Anastasia family underboss Carlo Gambino. Then, in May 1957, Genovese and his allies ordered the assassination of Costello but failed and only ended up wounding him. 
Regardless, the attack made Costello aware that Genovese wouldn't stop coming at him, and he decided to retire, leaving Genovese the new boss of the family that'd soon bear his name. And he would promote a mobster named Gerardo Jerry Catina to the position of underboss, which would become important pretty soon. Because in 1959, Abner's woman was found hanged in West Orange, New Jersey, shortly before he was set to appear before the McClellan Committee. In the aftermath, most of his rackets were absorbed into the Jersey faction, and with Zwoman's death, Richie Boyardo became the undisputed boss of Newark and had major gambling interests in Havana, Cuba, and Florida. But he was nearly 70 years old at this point, and likely not in a capacity to remain in charge of the family's Jersey faction, which is where Jerry Katina came in. Born on January 8, 1902, in South Orange, New Jersey, Katina quickly became familiar with other future heavyweight mobsters like Willie Moretti, Thomas Greco, Gus Frasca, and Abner Zwillman. And before long, he became a vending machine racketeer with interest in at least three vending machine companies in Newark. He then moved to New York City to join the forces of Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky during the early 1920s. And though not much is known about Katina's early days in the Luciano family, it's believed that by the late 1920s, he was a soldier in the family's Greenwich Village crew, led at the time by Vito Genovese. But of course, over time, he rose through the ranks and eventually became the family's underboss and new leader of the Jersey faction. However, he depended on capos like Richie Boyardo and Angelo DiCarlo to help run the faction. Regardless, it was this power that Katina held that likely eventually led to him being made part of a ruling council that ran the Genovese family. Throughout the 1960s, Katina continued to work with the upper administration before being subpoenaed to testify in Newark in 1970. But because he refused to answer any questions, he was held in contempt of court and sentenced to five years in prison before retiring to Florida after his release in 1975. However, by the time Katina came out, there had already been a changing of the guard within the family's Jersey faction, and its new de facto head would prove that the faction itself had almost as much reach as any family as a whole. Born in 1917, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, it didn't take long for Anthony Provenzano to become involved in unions. He became employed by Teamsters Local 560 in Union City, New Jersey, as a business agent from 1948 to 58, as a president from 1958 to 66, and as a secretary treasurer from 1975 to 79. More than that, however, he likely became a soldier in the Genovese family by 1960 at the age of 43. And though Provenzano had once been a friend to Teamsters Union director Jimmy Hoffa, he had since become an enemy after a reported feud when they were both in federal prison at USP Lewisburg in the 1960s. Hoffa planned to regain leadership of the Teamsters after his release, but was met with opposition from several members of the mob in 1973 and 74. So when Hoffa asked Tony Pro for his support to regain his former position, Provenzano refused, and it's likely that soon after, Pro, at the very least, would play a role in setting up Hoffa's murder. And it was an unprecedented move, because at least two of Pro's union opponents had been murdered, and others who had spoken out against him had been assaulted. And on July 30th, 1975, Hoffa was set to meet Provenzano and a coppa with the Detroit Partnership named Anthony Giacalone at a restaurant in Bloomfield Township, a Detroit suburb. 
and Hoffa was never seen again. And though Provenzano was never charged for this crime, he would end up being sentenced to life imprisonment for other crimes he committed throughout his criminal career in the late 1970s. But it wouldn't take long for the Jersey faction to find a new leader. Because in the early 1980s, Vincent Giganti became the new boss of the Genovese family and promoted a powerful New Jersey mobster named Louis Bobby Manna to Consigliere putting him in charge of the family's four capos in New Jersey in the process. More than that, Mana would oversee the New Jersey faction with help from his top aide, a capo named Lawrence Dentico. Mana even became the lead man for the Genovese family in discussions with the Gambinos on how to equally distribute Jersey. But by 1987, the relationship between the two families had deteriorated following the death of Philadelphia family boss Angelo Bruno. And in the aftermath, Gambino boss John Gotti sent word to Mana that the Genovese family should take over Bruno's North Jersey territory and leave more profitable South Jersey operations in Atlantic City to the Gambinos. But an enraged Mana, insulted by the offer, began planning to kill John and his brother Gene Gotti. Making matters worse, following the murder of Jersey-based Genovese capo John DeGilio in May 1988, the Gambinos took over the International Longshoremen's Association in New Jersey. They placed a Gambino soldier named Anthony Pimpinella as the new head of the union, allowing them control over the waterfront rackets at the Newark Elizabeth Port. But Mana would never get his chance at revenge because federal agents received information regarding his plan to have Gotti killed and informed the Gambino boss. And in 1989, Bobby and a Jersey faction soldier were indicted for racketeering and conspiring to murder John and Gene Gotti, with Mana eventually being sentenced to 80 years in prison. However, it didn't take long for a faction member to step up and fill Mana's shoes. Born in 1941 in Livingston, New Jersey, Tino the Greek Fumara quickly established himself in the New Jersey faction in the 1960s. Going to work for a Genovese capo named Peter LaPlaca, who controlled the International Longshoremen's Association activities at the local level in New Jersey. Fumara worked closely with Genovese family front boss Frank Funzitieri, who controlled all of the family's northern Jersey waterfront rackets. Tino also gained control of the ILA by paying off Thomas Buzanka, president of ILA local members in Brooklyn and New Jersey and the connection to Buzanka also allowed him to control Anthony Scotto, the ILA boss of the Brooklyn Docks. As a result, Fumara's power continued to grow on New Jersey waterfronts with the help of Michael Coppola, Michael Borelli, and Joseph Dotto Jr. And by the mid-1970s, the Fumara crew controlled many of the Genovese family's union and labor rackets on the New Jersey waterfront. His crew also cooperated in illegal gambling, loan sharking, extortion, and narcotics rackets with a Lucchese family capo named Anthony Asatoro. But in 1979, Fumara was convicted of labor racketeering and federal extortion in Newark and Manhattan and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Regardless, he continued to run his crew from the inside. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. 
Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose, the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find the Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Different Fumara crew members like Genovese soldier Michael Mikey Cigars Coppola assisted Fumara in running the day-to-day operations while Fumara gave orders through messengers and underlings who frequently visited him in prison. Then, in 1994, Fumara was released from prison and quickly assumed control of the New Jersey faction. While he was away, his New Jersey rival, Genovese Capo John DeGilio, was murdered by the family in 1988. The previous head of the Jersey faction, Louis Bobby Manna, was imprisoned in 1989 for conspiracy to murder John and Jean Gotti, and a Lucchese capo who operated in Jersey named Anthony Asatoro had been demoted by Vicka Musso and was in hiding. So when Fumara emerged from prison, he was in complete control of not only the Jersey faction, but Jersey as a whole. And by the mid-1990s, Tino was recognized as a mob powerhouse in New Jersey, and he began taking over all of the most lucrative rackets in Jersey, including the Jersey docks. He also maintained his control of unions from Newark Elizabeth Port and his involvement in loan sharking, extortion, gambling, and labor racketeering throughout the New Jersey counties of Union, Essex, and Bergen. But in 2000, Fumara was in prison for violating his parole, and he promoted Lawrence Ritchie and Michael Borelli as co-acting capos to secure his rackets and protect his power. He was released in 2002 before catching an 8-month bullet for violating his parole again. And when he was released this time around, he decided to step back from his operations and started using a man named Stephen DePiro to help control and handle all of the illegal operations on the New Jersey piers and docks. Despite that, it was proven that the Jersey faction was still incredibly active in the early 2000s. And according to the 2004 New Jersey Organized Crime Report, the Genovese family maintained five crews headquartered in New Jersey, each overseen by a capo, and at least four New York-based crews with operations in New Jersey. The report identified the five New Jersey-based capos as Tino Fumara, Angelo Prisco, Joseph Gatto, Silvio DeVita, and Ludwig Bruschi, who we'll get into a little later. As a result, the family had about 40 ranked soldiers and more than 400 associates who were active in New Jersey. It was also reported that the family operated in the northern New Jersey counties of Hudson, Essex, Union, Bergen, and Passaic counties, and in the earlier years had gained strength in Middlesex, Monmouth, and Ocean counties. But likely as a result of all this insight into the group, they would take some hits from law enforcement that same year. And in December 2004, authorities in Bergen County, New Jersey, arrested dozens of mobsters, including a soldier named Joseph Gatto, for operating illegal sports betting with ties to offshore wire rooms in Costa Rica. The indictment identified Joseph Gatto as a soldier in the Genovese family who was in control of his father, Louis Gatto's rackets. Then, on September 16, 2010, Tina Fumara died of cancer. Up until his death, Fumara was involved in New Jersey rackets and was a power within the family, so when he died, it left a huge power vacuum in the Jersey faction. As you might have noticed, 
Every other time that a leader of the faction was taken off the board, there was usually someone at the ready to take their place. But that wasn't the case after the death of Fumara. Because while there were plenty of good candidates, most of them weren't available. By this point, former heavyweights in the faction and close aides to Fumara, like Lawrence Ritchie and Michael Coppola, were out of the mix. Coppola was serving a 16-year sentence for a 2009 conviction, and Lawrence Ritchie had been killed in 2005. So it's not entirely known who took over as leader of the faction after Fumara died, but if I had to put my money on anyone, it would probably be a Genovese capo named Silvio De Vita. Born in 1931, De Vita came up under the tutelage of another old-school Jersey capo named Andy Gerardo, and eventually rose through the ranks to take over when he retired in the early 1990s. DeVita's crew was based out of Essex County, New Jersey, and specialized in construction industry and labor racketeering, the infiltration of legitimate businesses, insurance fraud, gambling, and loan sharking. And since Silvio himself is believed to be currently in control of Newark, a historically important location for the faction, I don't think it's a stretch to say that DeVita's probably the current head of the Genovese family's Jersey faction. But now that we've really finished talking about the history of the faction's leadership, I figured we'd take a deeper dive into the crews that made up the faction that we didn't really get to talk about. First up is the Prisco crew. Born in 1939, Angelo Prisco came up as a member of the East Harlem Purple Gang in the 1970s, and was later invited to join the Genovese family after the gang disbanded, and he later became a made man. Then, with the 1988 murder of Genovese capo John DeGilio, Prisco was made a capo and given control of the family's operations in Hudson County's Bayonne and Jersey City waterfronts, while he also expanded operations into Monmouth County and Florida. In 1994, Prisco was charged with racketeering as well as DeGilio's murder, but only ended up pleading guilty to a 1998 arson charge and was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Beginning a long string of stints in prison, culminating in him receiving a life sentence for the 1992 murder of a Genovese family associate named Angelo San Giulio in 2008. And he would die in 2017 at USP Coleman while serving out that sentence. Another incredibly powerful group within the Jersey faction was the Bruschi crew, led by Ludwig Bruschi, who was first identified by law enforcement as a bookmaker in the 1970s. He continued to operate gambling operations and by the mid-1990s had risen to the ranks of Capo, operating both in North and South Jersey. But he really rose to power in the Jersey faction while Tino Fumara was away in the early 1990s, and even more so after Angelo Prisco was imprisoned in 1994 until 2002. But in June 2003, Bruschi was indicted for running a racketeering enterprise engaged in illegal gambling, loan sharking, and drug distribution. He was paroled in April 2010 and died about 10 years later in 2020. The final crew up is the Gatto crew. It was led by a capo named Peter LaPlaca until the mid-1970s when Louis Gatto took over the crew. He eventually became the boss of Bergen County, New Jersey, with the help of his son, Joseph Gatto, and son-in-law and top enforcer, Alan Greco, controlling a large illegal gambling, loan sharking, and bookmaking operation in Bergen and Passaic counties. The trio used murder, violence, and fear to collect on these rackets, ensuring rivals wouldn't take advantage of their activities. 
But in 1989, Louis Gatto and Alan Greco were indicted for the murders of Arthur Bell and Vincent Mistretta. They were also alleged to be behind the murders of Jack Ciaramella, Johnny Lombardi, and Peter Adamo. Then, Joseph Gatto was released in 1993 and assumed control of his father's crew, expanding the crew's gambling operations by introducing the use of pagers and cell phones. However, by 1999, he was convicted on illegal gambling charges and took a plea deal where he admitted that he was a capo with the Genovese family. He was released in 2003, but was indicted once again in December 2004 for running an offshore wire room in Costa Rica, which allegedly grossed around $300,000 to $500,000 in profit every week. And when the conviction was overturned in 2005, prosecutors tried again in 2008, but Joseph Gatto died in April 2010 of natural causes without being jailed. And though the Jersey faction has taken a ton of losses, like the deaths of Fumara, Bruschi, and Prisco since the 2004 report, I think that they still have a pretty solid core. For one, though Salvatore DeVita is around 92 years old, he's still a capo and likely in a capacity to run the faction. Michael Borelli is also still a capo and has plenty of experience, as he was an acting capo of the Fumara crew in the early 2000s. And although Michael, Mikey Cigars Coppola, is still serving his 16-year sentence from 2009, he has a projected release date of 2023 and will likely come out a full-fledged capo. Besides that, the faction also still has a solid group of soldiers, including Steven DePiro, Lawrence Dentico, Michael Crincoli, Ralph Esposito, and Anthony Palumbo. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show, and tune back in next week for episode 51. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating, and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at The Black Hand Pod. And feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at The Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.